Hey friends, Nina here. Just a friendly reminder that I will be at the True Crime Podcast Festival in Austin, Texas, which is coming up this August. If you'd like to join us, visit truecrimepodcastfestival.com and use code GONE for a special savings on tickets. Also, this week's episode is an old, cold case involving a child. I know not everyone is a big fan of cases involving children, but this is an important story that deserves to be told. And now, on with the show. Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back in the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. It was a pleasant spring afternoon in Kalamazoo, Michigan, when eight-year-old Jeannie Singleton was walking home from school. Jeannie was spotted resting her legs not too far from her home, but she never made it back for dinner. Her disappearance sparked a massive manhunt. In fact, it would be one of the biggest searches in Kalamazoo history. But would Jeannie ever come home? Jeannie Singleton was born in 1946 to parents Steve and Dorothy. She had five other siblings, and she absolutely doted on all of them. She was exceptionally close with her 13-year-old sister, Patsy, who she shared a bedroom with, and even sometimes shared clothes with. In October 1954, the Singleton siblings were baptized as a group. Dorothy commented, With that baptism, we turn them over to God and we are just their trustees. The Singleton family lived on Blakesley Street in Kalamazoo. It was a tree-lined neighborhood consisting of mostly families. Jeannie was a student at Woodward Elementary School. At school, she was known for her friendly and welcoming demeanor. In fact, teachers commented that she was one of the friendliest children in the whole school. She had a smile for everyone and always came to class each morning in a good mood. Whenever there was a new child in the neighborhood, Jeannie was the first to welcome them. On her way to and from school, she would often stop to chat with neighbors, and she was known to stop for a talk with the local fireman on Douglas. Jeannie was the apple of her parents' eye. Unfortunately for Jeannie, when she was just four years old, she developed rheumatic fever, and it left her right leg shorter than her left leg. As a result, she walked with a limp, but this small disability never got in her way. Her father, Steve, worked long hours as a truck driver, delivering paper for $70 a week, while her mother, Dorothy, worked part-time at a local nursing home. The 23rd of May, 1955, started out like a regular day for Jeannie. That morning, she put on a plaid dress, multicolored sandals, and white socks. She teamed her outfit with a silky pink kerchief that she wore on her head and set off for school. When school ended about 3.30, she started to walk the short distance back home. About a block and a half away from her house, she was spotted by a young boy, Robert Holderbaum. Robert was walking home from school, much like Jeannie. 
He was making his typical trek north on Douglas when Jeannie ran up behind him. She was really excited to show him her new shoes. Robert and Jeannie knew each other from school. They continued walking together to the corner of Douglas and Blakesley Street, and this is where they parted ways. He continued north toward his house while Jeannie went west toward her home. After Robert turned away, he glanced around to see Jeannie sitting down on a curb. She sometimes stopped during walks to rest her leg. She waved at Robert and then shouted that she would see him tomorrow. From that point, Jeannie only had about a tenth of a mile left to make it home, less than the length of two football fields. Dorothy was preparing dinner, expecting to see Jeannie bound through the front door at any moment. While the walk was a short one and it shouldn't have taken her long, Jeannie was popular. Sometimes when she walked home from school, she'd get sidetracked. She'd bump into friends and sometimes would stop in their homes to play for a while before returning to her own home. Sometimes Jeannie even stayed for dinner without telling her parents. It was 1955, and children had more freedom than they do nowadays. Dinner time came and went, and little Jeannie still hadn't made it home. By nightfall, Dorothy and Steve were frantic. They made a phone call to police about 9.30 p.m. The response to Jeannie's disappearance was immediate. Friends and family, as well as other members of the community, set off on foot in search of the missing girl. They immediately retraced the walk she would have made from school to home, but there was no sign of her. By the following morning, police were assisted not only by about 150 volunteers, but by the Civil Air Patrol and the National Guard. Police Captain Riley Stewart announced that by noon, he anticipated that over 300 searchers would be available to continue scouring the area in search of Jeannie. Searchers fanned out in groups, combing the city streets and the neighboring woodland and swamp. There was a fear that she may have gotten herself stuck somewhere, and with the trouble her legs sometimes caused her, she could be unable to get back out. Meanwhile, investigators are going door to door, asking the community whether they had seen her. They made contact with all of her friends in school, but the last reported sighting was from Robert, who had seen her sitting down on a curb. They also focused their search on any vacant buildings, garages, and basements. When it became apparent that Jeannie had not stopped at a friend's home like first expected, fear immediately washed over Dorothy and Steve, as well as the rest of the community. Jeannie was a friendly little girl. She would stop and chat with anybody. They feared that this, combined with her disability, could have made her an easy target for a child predator. By that afternoon, there were nearly a thousand people searching for Jeannie, or even for some clue to point them in the right direction. Many locals were given time off work to assist in the search. Investigators announced they had ruled out the possibility that Jeannie was kidnapped for ransom. Typically, those kinds of cases are reserved for wealthy families, and the Singleton family was not wealthy. Both Steve and Dorothy worked their hardest to provide the family with a comfortable life, but no, they did not have a lot of money. Moreover, it was day two of the disappearance, and no ransom had been received. While in some ways they saw this as a positive, it also made people fear that Jeannie had been abducted by a sexual predator. 
The next day, the search for Jeannie widened. For the first two days, the focus of the search was local, mostly in the area between Jeannie's school and her home. There was no shred of evidence to point investigators and searchers in any direction. It was almost as if the ground had opened up and swallowed the little girl whole. That morning, investigators met for a strategy meeting, and they mapped out a new search area. They wanted to fan out further afield, and Captain Stewart ominously announced, I think the chances that she is dead are greater than those that she is alive. As the search continued, investigators began looking into all local sex offenders, or, as the media reported it at the time, sexual deviants. This included a teenage boy who worked at a local hotel. He came down to police headquarters to be interviewed, but he insisted he had never seen Jeannie before in his life. They questioned him for a couple of hours before releasing him after he passed a polygraph examination. Investigators were now considering that Jeannie willingly climbed into a nefarious person's car. While Jeannie was very friendly, Dorothy wasn't so sure. While Jeannie was friendly, Dorothy said she had warned her daughter on numerous occasions never get in a stranger's car, no matter who they claim to be or what they say to you. You see, children in Michigan had been taught about stranger danger. Earlier in the year, seven-year-old Barbara Gasha was abducted while walking to school in Detroit. She was, unfortunately, sexually assaulted and then murdered, and the case really struck fear into the hearts of parents across the state. When Jeannie was reported missing, many feared that she could have been abducted by the same elusive man who had murdered Barbara. Barbara's killer was never identified, and her case truly terrified the entire state of Michigan. In fact, a group of mothers in the vicinity of DeWitt Clinton Elementary School in Chalfont had teamed up to guard children as they walked to and from school. Each morning and each afternoon, mothers would watch the neighborhood. They had actually set up their first watch just the day before Jeannie disappeared. Unfortunately, there wasn't anything like that in place where Jeannie was living. Each evening, Dorothy and Steve returned home for another sleepless night of wondering where their little girl was and if she was okay. Dorothy commented, I can hold up in the daylight, but when it gets dark, I just can't take it. The next morning, the first potential clue was finally discovered. A search party scouring Kleinstock Reserve, which is a state wildlife preserve, found a pink silk kerchief tied to a single tree. The area was about three miles away from where Jeannie was last seen by her friend Robert. The kerchief was placed in an evidence bag, and investigators took it to the Singleton home. Dorothy, Steve, and Patsy all identified it as the one Jeannie was wearing when she left for school the morning she disappeared. Now, I should mention that on the second day of the search, intense rainfall hampered the search but the kerchief when they found it was completely dry, which made investigators think that it hadn't been on the tree for very long. Further examination of the kerchief revealed strands of hair tied into the knot. The hair looked similar to Jeannie's hair, but this is 1955, so DNA analysis isn't an option. 
By now, investigators had received over 500 tips in relation to the disappearance. One of these tips came in from Eva Cook. She lived in Benton Harbor. She said that the day after Jeannie disappeared, she saw a girl matching her description. She said the girl was sitting in a car near Mercy Hospital and she was crying. Another tip came in from the same area and the tip was eerily similar. Milton Gray told police he saw a girl who looked like Jeannie that same day, also near Mercy. He said the girl that he saw was limping, much like Jeannie would have been. The kerchief led investigators to want to focus the search in that specific area, but the next day, what was once hailed as a lucrative piece of evidence was discredited. Jeannie's teacher, Ethel Perry, said that Jeannie was not wearing the kerchief in school that day, despite the fact that her family could have sworn that she was wearing it. The conflicting claims, well, caused a conflict. Patsy said she and Jeannie had argued about the kerchief. It was Patsy's, but Jeannie liked to wear it. Patsy said the kerchief was absent from her drawer, so Jeannie must have worn it. Dorothy and Steve, meanwhile, are at their wit's end. They are living with the uncertainty of what happened to their daughter, and Dorothy said, I want her back, dead or alive. I want her with me. I want to know where she is. Dorothy thought back to the baptism and the comment she made about being the children's trustee. She said, But with Jeannie's disappearance, I asked God to give her back to me. Steve said he didn't know if his daughter would ever be found, but he expressed his optimism, stating that he believed she was still alive, but being kept somewhere far away from where the search was focused. In an attempt to gain new information, a reward was put forward. Investigators began considering the possibility that Jeannie was still alive, and maybe she'd been abducted by a childless woman who wanted a daughter of her own. Chief Deputy Sheriff Glenn Hamill commented, Let's not forget we may be looking for a woman. This girl could have been abducted by a woman who is childless and desperately wants a child as lovable as this one. While investigators had conducted door-to-door inquiries, by the 27th of May, they wanted to take that a step further and ask that homeowners open up their homes to be physically searched. Investigators also set up a new approach to the search for Jeannie. It was called Operation Flat Top, and it requested that all residents in the area who had a vehicle meet up for an organized search of every road in the county. Volunteers would be placed on top of the vehicle so they could observe both sides of the road. They would then get off the car at culverts and railroad tracks to search further. Before the month was out, the FBI were asked for their assistance, but they declined the request, stating there was no evidence that Jeannie had been taken across the state line, so the search for her continued without FBI support. Over in a secluded area near the village of Doster, a group of children were playing hide-and-seek in a lonely pine wood. It was the first of June, and the area where they were playing was in a wild back country. This was about 15 miles north of Kalamazoo. As the children played, they spotted something lying on the ground in the distance. As they got closer to get a better look, they recoiled in horror when they realized it was the body of a little girl. They had found the decomposed body of Jeannie Singleton. 
The children ran home to report what they had found, and investigators arrived on scene. They cordoned off the area surrounding the body and then got to work. Absolutely no attempt had been made to conceal the body, and if it weren't for the condition, it would look like she had simply laid down and died. There were, however, telltale signs of foul play. It could immediately be observed that Jeannie had been the victim of a brutal attack. There was bruising to her hips and arms, and her dress was pulled up above her waist. She was still wearing her stockings and her shoes, and her hair was still tied up in a ponytail. Most of her teeth were missing, and investigators believe that Jeannie was killed right where her body was found. At autopsy, they concluded she had been sexually assaulted, beaten, and strangled. At first, it was speculated that her teeth had been knocked out by her killer, but it turns out her teeth had fallen out due to decomposition. The pathologist said it was most likely that Jeannie had been killed on the day she was abducted, and, based on the injuries, he speculated that she was beaten with fists rather than some sort of object. Now, investigators had to inform her family of the tragic development. As soon as Dorothy heard that Jeannie wasn't coming home, she collapsed onto the ground and needed to be placed under the care of a doctor. Steve commented, I think that Michigan must have a death penalty. But, as we've discussed in previous episodes, Michigan was the first jurisdiction to abolish capital punishment for ordinary crimes. But, shortly after Jeannie was killed, there were several attempts at the state legislature to have capital punishment reinstated. You see, Jeannie was the third little girl in Michigan to have been abducted, sexually assaulted, and then killed in less than a year. Nine-year-old Kathleen McLaughlin was stabbed and beaten to death in Detroit in February of that same year. And then in March, seven-year-old Barbara Gasha was beaten to death. Kathleen's killer was caught, but not Barbara's. There were a number of similarities between Jeannie's murder and Barbara's, and there was fear that a sadistic child killer was lurking. The area where Jeannie had been found was very secluded. In fact, the nearest road was about 100 feet away, but the nearest traveled road was almost a mile away. The woodland was dense, and it rarely got visitors in that deep. Investigators believed that the area could have only been found by someone familiar with it. The five children who lived on a nearby farm sometimes played in the woodland, but never in the area they were playing that day. So it was nothing short of a miracle that Jeannie was even found. This area was sometimes known as a lover's lane due to its isolated nature. The parents of the children said they sometimes saw people pull up, but they often took no notice of these people because it was mostly young couples who wanted some private time. They did, however, recall seeing an old black car, possibly a 1935 or 1936 model, pass their house twice on Memorial Day. They could see that there was a single man in the car, and they thought he was acting suspiciously, but they never put two and two together to realize it could have been linked with Jeannie's disappearance, at least not until her body was found. Now this was a good lead and investigators went door-to-door asking if anyone had seen anything suspicious or if they'd seen the car in question. Another person living nearby recalled that they too had seen the unfamiliar car with the solo male driver. Captain Stewart said, 
The hottest tip thus far is the report by two separate persons of a mysterious automobile seen in the vicinity of where the body was found. Both people had seen the car on the 23rd of May, which was the day that Jeannie vanished. The crime scene was still being investigated. Unfortunately, a lot of people had trampled through the crime scene before it was cordoned off. Investigators said they were able to find footprints of a child and an adult leading directly to the scene, but only a set of adult footprints leading back out. This find bolstered their belief that Jeannie was abducted, led to the isolated area, and then killed. As the hunt for her killer continued, her loved ones gathered to bid her one final farewell at the new Apostolic Church, where Jeannie's family had often prayed each Sunday. All 150 seats in the white frame church were filled, and mourners were spilling out to the street as well. The community had really come together the way a community should in such a tragedy, and they all felt connected to Jeannie and her family. They had worked round the clock to try and bring her home safely, and when they learned she wasn't coming home, it was a gut punch. The service was led by Reverend Carl Strang, who said that what had happened to Jeannie was God's way, and they would be reunited in the great beyond. A number of plainclothes detectives mingled among the mourners and kept a watchful eye on people coming and going from the funeral. Sometimes a killer will attend their victim's funeral. It can be a way to taunt investigators for their inability to capture them, while for others, it's a way to relive the murder. But there was no one that stuck out to the investigators. All they saw was genuine heartbreak. After the service, Jeannie was buried in Everrest Memorial Park. So investigators are still searching for the elusive car, but they also began reinvestigating all local known sex offenders. There was one sex offender who had recently been released after serving an eight-year sentence in Southern Michigan prison. He had relatives who lived near the area where Jeannie's body was found and investigators wanted to speak with him. They also tracked down a man named Leo Lyons. Leo lived in Grand Rapids. He had been paroled from the Ionia State Hospital, where he had been sent as a criminal sexual psychopath. Investigators learned that he was in Detroit at the time Barbara was killed, and they wondered if he could somehow be linked to both crimes. Investigators got another lead as they were investigating these two men. On the day that Jeannie disappeared, there had been several people to witness a sandy-haired man try to lure girls into his vehicle in Kalamazoo. On each occasion, the man pulled his car up alongside a girl and asked them to go for a ride. When they refused, he laughed maniacally. Investigators had heard from a handful of people who witnessed the man's behavior and he was seen accosting around seven schoolgirls. Investigators referred to this lead as the hottest one they had uncovered since Jeannie vanished. In an attempt to generate some information regarding this man, investigators turned to a Veterans Rehabilitation Center in Pine Lakes, just a few miles away from where Jeannie's body was found. This center housed about 200 patients, and investigators were wanting to see if anyone could identify the strange man. He was described as being about 40 years old and well-dressed. He was driving a dark blue 1954 Chevrolet sedan. 
They were hoping that one of the residents may have seen the man or his vehicle in the area. Meanwhile, two sex offenders were ruled out as being involved in the murder because both men had airtight alibis. And before we get into the suspects, we're going to take a short break. Investigators were able to track down a man who may have been the sandy-haired man. Investigators had a sketch of the man drawn up based on descriptions from two teenage girls. As the sketches were released in the media, a man turned himself into police. He said that he was the man in question. The suspect was 29-year-old Stanley Edgerton, a father of two children, and he admitted that, yes, he had been accosting young girls, but he denied any involvement in Jeannie's murder. Edgerton was brought to police headquarters where he underwent a polygraph examination, which came back as inconclusive. Investigators described Edgerton as being, quote, in such a mental condition that the test did not reveal anything. During the polygraph exam, Edgerton had said, I will sit here all night if I have to, but I won't confess to something I didn't do. Investigators said that the man was currently the main suspect in the gruesome murder, and they were going to be closely examining the alibi he provided. They also vacuumed his car, which was a 1953 sedan, and sent the dust particles to the state lab to see if there was anything that could link the vehicle to Jeannie. Edgerton was charged with accosting a 14-year-old girl, and he posted a $1,000 bond and was allowed to go free from jail. The community was relieved that there were developments in the case, and they speculated that it was only a matter of time before Edgerton was charged with Jeannie's murder. But it wasn't meant to be. Investigators could never find any conclusive evidence connecting him with her disappearance or her murder but he would be convicted of the accosting charge. Early the next month, a collective sigh of relief came from the community when there was another arrest. This time, it was 62-year-old Wade Calder. He was named as the prime suspect in not only Jeannie's murder, but Barbara's murder as well. In recent weeks, Calder had been rooming in Charlotte, and he made some very ominous comments to his landlady. He told her that she should never leave her little girls alone with him. His comment frightened her so much that she called the police. Police had also heard from a couple who told them that Calder had molested their daughters many years earlier. Investigators learned that Calder was in Detroit at the time of Barbara's murder and in Kalamazoo at the time of Jeannie's murder. Now, Calder didn't have a criminal record, and when he was arrested under suspicion of the two murders, he was said to be perplexed. While the evidence was lackluster, the media really made it seem as though the case was being cracked wide open. Based on his history, he was a likely suspect, but the following day, he was cleared of both murders. You see, he had taken a polygraph examination and had passed. And yeah, I know how we feel about polygraph examinations and how it should not clear a suspect, but here we are. Another person of interest emerged shortly thereafter. Kenneth Kuzner had randomly opened fire in a tavern in Flint, killing three people and injuring another. Kuzner was a Detroit truck driver. When he was arrested, he said he could offer no explanation for the shooting. 
he had stopped at the bar en route from Detroit from Marlette. He was drinking a couple of beers and made several trips to the front window to check on his truck. On the last trip, he observed two couples sitting in a booth, Sam and Jeannie Farah and Margaret Cross and James Dollars. Kuzner randomly decided to open fire on the four people, killing three of them instantly. While Kuzner could offer no insight, his mother, Marion, told investigators that he had a history of what she described as mental frustration, which stemmed from his rejection from the military. When they looked at his criminal record, they found he had once tried to strangle a 17-year-old girl and had strangled two young boys. They decided they wanted a better look at him as a person of interest in the murders of both Jeannie and Barbara, but they could find no connection, which put them back at square one. Winter was fast approaching, and the case was really no closer to a resolution, but it wasn't from lack of effort. Investigators had been working tirelessly trying to finger a suspect. As families were preparing for a festive period in December, investigators from all across the state of Michigan got together for a conference. They wanted to exchange information in unsolved cases to see if any of them could potentially be linked. They had already theorized that Jeannie and Barbara could have been killed by the same person, but they weren't completely sure. In January, a man in East Lansing was arrested for molesting a number of children and exposing himself to others. This man was possibly sighted in the Kalamazoo area on the day Jeannie vanished. He was linked to at least 150 indecent exposure incidents over the past three years. And he readily admitted to these offenses, but he denied any involvement in the murders. What he liked to do was to lure girls to his car with the promise of candy or cookies and then expose himself. As was a common theme in the case, the man could not be linked to the murder of Jeannie or the murder of Barbara. The one-year anniversary came and went, but in June, there was a potential development. On the 18th of June, a 12-year-old girl was riding her bicycle beside Eagle Lake, not too far from where Jeannie's body was found. As she cycled, she was attacked by a man wearing a gunny sack over his head. He emerged from the woodland and ran up behind her. They scuffled on the ground as he tried to force another sack over her head. Fortunately, the little girl was with her dog, and he leapt on the man in defense of the girl. The man was bitten by the dog, and he fled on foot. Residents living nearby heard the girl scream, and when police arrived on scene, there was evidence of a struggle. Near the roadside, they found the abandoned sack. The girl described the man as wearing blue denim trousers and a jacket. Investigators and the community alike feared the man may have been Jeannie's killer attempting to take another victim. While investigators tried to identify him, they learned of another potential suspect, a 51-year-old man living in Muskegon. He was reported to police for acting suspiciously around a group of children. When brought in for questioning, he revealed that he had lived in Kalamazoo when Jeannie disappeared. He denied any involvement in her murder and refused the polygraph leading to a plethora of suspicion among investigators. After refusing, he gave in and took the polygraph exam, which ruled him out of the inquiries. By September, investigators were struggling to find any more persons of interest. 
They had no evidence that could lead them to Jeannie's killer, and it was decided that four area police agencies would establish a two-man detective team to focus on the case. They had been warned that Jeannie's killer would most likely strike again. Investigators had spent hours listening to Dr. Clarence Schreer, and they knew that Jeannie's killer needed to be quickly apprehended so that no other child would suffer the same fate. By now, over 1,000 people had been investigated in both Michigan and further afield. Dr. Schreer suggested that the killer of Jeannie was possibly someone in his late teens or someone past middle age. He described him as a psychopath, but said he could be neat and a well-liked person. His comments left the community looking at every man they knew through suspicious eyes. Another suspect emerged in December of 1956, 37-year-old Edward Seifert. He had been charged with the statutory rape of a nine-year-old girl in Ithaca, Michigan. He admitted to picking the girl up, but claimed that he blacked out after that. The little girl identified him as the man who had abducted her and sexually assaulted her. Investigators wanted to question him in relation to Jeannie's murder, but once again, they found nothing linking him to her case. Investigators worked hard to try and solve this case, but eventually, the years trickled past with no developments. There were a handful of other suspects and other persons of interest over the years, but there was never enough evidence for charges to be filed. Captain Stewart commented in 1960, We have not stopped working on this case. Whenever another police agency in the state apprehends a person for a similar crime, we talk to the prisoner, and this practice will continue. In 1973, an unidentified man was investigated for the murder of Jeannie. He had passed away back in 62, but he had an extensive history of sexual violence. His wife went to police years later and told them that she believed that he had killed Jeannie. She said he had driven her to the area where Jeannie's body was found, and he had even driven her past the Singleton home. In 1959, he had raped his wife in the Pine Grove where Jeannie's body was found. Almost as if history were repeating itself, there was not enough evidence for charges to ever be filed, even though he was already deceased. The years became decades, and the case was cold. At the time of Jeannie's murder, Polygraph examinations were basically the be-all and end-all of whether someone was guilty. The murder case had a plethora of suspects, but unfortunately, most of them were cleared simply by passing a polygraph examination. Unfortunately, no DNA was ever recovered from the crime scene, ruling out the likelihood of the ice-cold case being connected to anyone. In 1985, one investigator on the case commented, Do I have any realistic hopes it's going to be solved? No. And what purpose would it serve at this point in time other than to mark the file closed? Investigators still have a big file on this cold case. And in 2012, Detective Mike Spring and Detective Chuck Christensen interviewed a man who they refused to name. They suspected that Jeannie's killer was dead, but this man made them think twice. They interviewed him and at the time he was living in a southwestern state. They left that interview convinced they had come face-to-face with Jeannie's killer, but once again, there was not enough evidence for charges to be filed, and this unidentified man has since passed away. 
Sadly, Jeannie's father, Steve, went to his grave without ever knowing who killed his daughter. He passed away in 1984. Her mother, Dorothy, died in 2007. They had tried their hardest to pick up the pieces of the life they once had, but the wave of emotion that comes with a murdered child weighed heavily on the family. If you have information about the murder of Jeannie Singleton, please call Kalamazoo Police at 269 488 8911.